1: Right now on Fast So Long, 75, the Fed chairman saying bigger rate hikes than the one we got today are not on the table for now. Stocks roaring higher on those words, the Dow climbing over 900 points, rallying for the third straight day. Is this the new Powell put for the markets? It's not just stocks rising in today's trade, Bitcoin getting a big time bounce. Could this be the start of a new move higher for crypto? But not everything sunshine and rainbows and unicorns today. The Fed's still warning that inflation is too darn high. One of our traders says this chart of diesel is a sign that prices have not peaked and might stay stubbornly higher for quite some time. Welcome to Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site in the heart of Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. On the desk tonight, in the house, Nice and and Karen Feinerman, Brian Kelly, and Dan Nathan. And we start off with the answer to the one question the markets wanted to hear. Could we see a 75 basis point hike in our future?
2: 75 basis point uh, in an increase is not something the committee is actively considering.
1: From the moment those words left the chairman's mouth, the major averages were off to the races rallying nearly 3 percent across the board. S&P 500 posting its best day since May 2020. Now, I'm going to ask to pause here because before we get to the (laughs) man who asked the chairman to speak those market moving words, I'm going to come right here to our desk first and ask you guys this question. Based on what he said, do you think 75 basis points is off Mm. the table? Raise your hands. No one. Yeah. It's still Mm. on the table. Okay. Where are my hands. Let's let's get to senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Interesting how the markets (laughs) (laughs) respond and how the traders actually, you know, process his words, Steve.
0: Yes. um, It's it's interesting. Uh, The Fed... uh, and the Fed Chair Powell delivered what they were uh, expected to deliver: 50 basis point rate hike today, a plan to slash the balance sheet 95 billion. But Powell threw the market a bone, and the market went scurrying. Take a look at the big change. You want to look at the equity market? I'm looking at Fed probabilities here. Before this meeting, there was a 51 percent chance probability, according to Refinitiv, of a 75 basis point rate hike at one of the meetings. Uh, May was existent back then. June and July. After Powell, it is now down to 7%. I don't know if you have uh, 0.7% of a person there who can uh, vouch for that, Melissa. But here's the whole spectrum of where the Fed futures market is priced now. Down 10, 15 basis points on each. So still very aggressive here for sure, um, but not necessarily as aggressive as it had been. Look, you have to remember this, Melissa. Powell, instead of saying, hey, we're not going 75, he replaced that with we're doing two fifty. So that's a pretty big deal here for the next uh, uh, couple meetings here. The Fed's going to neutral. It considers neutral two and a quarter, two and a half percent. It's a freight train on the way to neutral. I don't think anything is gonna stop it. But what he did say, instead of the market have you know, ring where where the market is priced, are you at 330, 340, 350? He said, We're gonna stop, look around at neutral, probably go at least somewhat above it, but he's not playing the game. And I want to just quote my friend Paul McCulley who says a smart forecaster never forecasts around two turns. He told you what the forecast was for the first turn. He's not playing the game of the second turn.
1: <laughs> um, neutral, Steve, do we have an idea, a good idea of what they mean by neutral?
0: It's a good question. And had I not needed to ask that one question, it was the second question on my list, yeah. which is, Mr. Chairman, sir, where is neutral and what do you think about neutral now? I didn't get a chance to ask that. I was trying to get a feel, as you remember from my follow-up, which Tell me why it's going to be 25, 50, or 75 one month, and and uh, y- y- one meeting or another. And actually, we have a reason to ask that because we have got the jobs number coming up. So if the jobs number comes in with a with a higher unemployment rate or a lower unemployment rate, do I then think for sure it's a 50, or is it somehow possible to go to 25? He took 75 off the table and he said 50 is just fine. I think, you know, I, I'll throw this out to your to my friends there on the on, on the uh, on the panel. We've had a kind of decline in this notion of the Fed put, but I think we learned today there's not necessarily a Fed call out there. Powell doesn't seem to have any particular interest in driving the market lower if he doesn't have to. So we threw the market, I think, an important bone. I didn't realize how much the market needed that 75 to get off the table to find its feet. But I don't think Powell said, you know, he, he, he doesn't need to drive the market down necessarily, but he's certainly not going to be in there supporting it if it falls again.
1: Unless, of course, you think that all the action today, or, or most of the action, was driven by algos, because most uh, participants or many participants still believe that it it could be on the table at some later date. Dan, that was your take. Yeah. We were talking but about Melissa. That. Are there oh, yeah. are there
0: still actual participants? Isn't it all just algos anyway? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nobody's actually trading. we here, Hulk. Steve. Steve.
3: We're here. We're still here, man. They can't get rid of us. I mean, here's the deal, though, Steve. You know, when you think about there was a lot of talk about the stock market and you just said throwing the market a bone. I mean, when you think about how the market sold off now from that second day of the year from an all time high, the S&P 500 sold down 15 percent in front of the first 25 basis point hike that we got there. So they sold the rumor. They bought the news. We had that big rip. I think all of us were like it wasn't if they had said 75 might be on the table. I I don't know what the market would have done And actually, the market, But a rally too, because maybe hitting it hard, like out of the gate, might have been good too. I don't know.
4: Yes. It's so interesting to say, if you told me what he was going to say before this (laughs) and said, make money on this, right? (laughs) The only way to make money would be to sell the information, because it wouldn't surprise me if another take on this whole thing would have been, wow, they're behind the eight ball here. Why would they take that off the table? What does that get him? And I don't I don't see it as that it is off the table. It's sort of to me like hidden in that is data dependent. Right. You get a couple of hot numbers.
1: And I think 75 should be back on the table. Which, by the way, is is not a departure from what he has said and what he continues to say. And yet the markets really, I mean, took that bone, Steve, and ran with it. So, Bono, what was your take here? It's
5: like, why paint yourself into a corner? Like yes. we need to maintain maximum flexibility right now. We've all said, listen, we're behind the curve on here. We might need to accelerate this thing. I don't understand why you would even indicate in the slightest fashion that all thi- no bets are off the table, right? And so for me, I don't think that it was off the table. He said uh, it's not immediate. It's not in the immediacy of what we're planning to do. That if that is not a walk around to answering a question, I don't know what it is. I can understand that you don't want to spook the markets, but I don't think the difference of 25 basis points is the difference between. Being us being flat or us being two and up two and a half three percent, it just it, I, I didn't make it didn't make sense to me.
6: Yeah, and everything we're talking about is the risk to this rally. So what we've seen over the last several months is you get these days you're up three percent, you come in tomorrow and you're down three percent. So the risk here is tomorrow the market wakes up and says, hey, wait a second, the Fed's still behind the curve and they're not even they're not even going to catch up. They really needed that seventy five basis points. So I think you have to wait and see how this works. Today's rally made sense to me in only one way. In that there was a 51% chance of a 75 bits bip hike in June. If you were short and you were valuing stocks on that, then you had to cover because now that probability came down. So that's new information. I don't necessarily think that's sustainable, but we'll find out over the next couple of days.
1: Nor is that information then to be long or go longer. than yeah, I don't to think cover so. Your short exactly. It's not necessarily information to be long. Um, Steve, I'm, I'm, did he answer directly, and forgive me if he did and I missed it because I was sort of in transit, but um, did he answer directly wh- how far he is willing to go, um, you know, in terms of sticking by that 50 if he sees, you know, financial conditions really he, tightening and, and maybe the economy going towards recession in any way?
0: He did not he didn't. And, and I do want to mm-hmm. respond to Bono, which is this notion of, well, why take it off the table? I, I think it's fair to recall that the fed is asking the market to digest an awful lot here um something that's never happened before we haven't done a 50 in 22 years we've never done 95 billion dollars of balance sheet reduction uh over a period of time here i think what powell is saying to you is and by the way he's also pulled forward a whole lot of rate increases here here uh into the future I don't think he needs 75 to do it right now because of how much the market has already priced in. So in answer to, to Melissa's question, he told you he's going to neutral, probably a little bit above neutral. He's not forecasting how much above. Remember, he said, look, it may be that inflation is peaked and we don't know it yet. So he's reserving the, the, the flexibility to go either way. He may have to go where we're at the worst possible outcome here, but he's just not forecasting it because, frankly, he doesn't know.
4: Steve, it's Karen. Let me ask you something Melissa touched on, which is what is neutral? Is this the new neutral? I sort of thought two and a half-ish was the old neutral with a different inflationary environment than the one that we're in now. So I was wondering, is its is it three?
0: What is it? Uh, you know, the Fed forecast forecasting two and, a, two and a quarter and two and a half. There's some notion on a short-term basis, neutral may be higher. Um, and, and then you, the real question you want to ask because it's a little bit more answerable than your other question is why I'm going there, uh, is what rate is needed to really slow the economy down? It is someplace above that. It may be three. It may be three and a half percent. Certainly when you look at that chart I put up earlier of where the market's headed, it's headed to 330. That's what it thinks is where the Fed needs to go right now in terms of bringing down the inflation rate.
1: Steve, it's always great to see you. Thank you. And what an amazing question, Steve, really. (laughs) You said the global markets are rallying there. Um, This is all, of course, uh, in the hope of killing inflation, right? Check out, though, this chart of diesel fuel hitting another record high at more than 75 percent compared to a year ago. BK here says this is one of the reasons the Fed is going to struggle to get inflation under control. What is diesel telling you?
6: Yeah, well, listen, I mean, we're seeing diesel prices almost double this year. Uh, and you're seeing diesel supplies, which we got today at 1030, below the five-year average, significantly below, I think almost 20 percent below. So what's happening here is refiners are out there and they're saying, hey, we got to make some more diesel so we can keep these trucks rolling. But they're pulling that, that oil that they otherwise would have put into gasoline for the summer drive. Season. So you have these two kind of things going on where prices are going to stay higher in all energy classes, and that's there's nothing that the Fed can do about that. That's a supply-side issue. So you may want to raise rates. You could raise rates to 5%, and it may not impact this at all. So in my view, this is why I think the Fed is probably going to raise a lot more than what people think, and inflation is going to be a heck of a lot stickier than anybody thinks, or at least that the market is pricing in.
1: Right. The Fed can only address demand-side right of the equation not the supply side and in fact a lot of the inflation that we're seeing right now is supply side inflation so that is the pickle that the Fed is in.
3: Right. And so, you know, Steve just said it. The last time the Fed raised 50 basis point was May uh, of 2000. And they did not know at the time that they were basically going to hike into a recession. They thought the economy was pretty good. They were trying to tamp down an asset bubble at the time. And when you think about that, Fed funds was at six and a half percent in 2000. And it went down to one and a half at the lows in that dot-com crash period. And then in 07, we were at five and a quarter percent. They brought it to zero during the financial crisis. So here we are. We got back to two and a half percent in 2019. OK, we have a black swan event. They bring it to zero. Fine. They screwed up. They just we, we all agree that they just kept on going. And then we had another uh, we had this asset bubble plus inflation. And now mm-hmm. they might have a weakening economy. And so to me, if you think that the S&P 500 down 15 percent and what we just saw this year encapsulates everything what we just talked about, it, you think that's it? No way. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So to me, the last two times we we saw this. The S&P got cut in half. It went down 50 percent in both instances. Tell me why I'm wrong. It won't, won't do 30. I don't know. I don't know.
5: You know, I think Steve makes some good points. I mean, taking or at least framing 75 in a way that it is a bit more conciliatory to the market. You got to keep in mind. I think people have a hard time shifting out of this QE situation that we've been in for the better part of two decades. Now we're raising rates. We've come out of this accommodative situation with COVID, etc. I mean, he makes a point. Why send additional shockwaves to the market? All I'm saying is, given where we are here and now, being that most of the tools are not going to address the issues that we're seeing, the wage, well, it's somewhat wages, but the supply situation that's really leading to a lot of inflationary pressure, the commodity situation that's leading to a lot of commodity pressure, why hmm, why send additional shockwaves? I, I, I'm willing to kind of think on that. My My line of reasoning is, given that we need to attack this and we're behind the eight ball, why would you put anything out there that refrains you from doing everything necessary or possible to attack this right. and hit this in the butt that was don't take point.
1: anything off the table basically exactly. yeah right. Yeah. And
4: maybe he doesn't think he did. Maybe he's like, I don't yeah. even he, I, mean, yeah. I don't think he did. I don't think anybody yeah. at this
1: table I, thought he did today, actually. Right. It just the, the market reacted rally. as if right. he did. But exactly. I don't feel there's a I don't I just, feel that
6: he did. But that's a really good point, because remember what the Fed's been doing is they have a, been a tremendous job with the communication channel. So let's watch over the next couple of days when these Fed governors come out and start saying, hey, wait a second, maybe 75 bips is back on. Then we'll see if this rally has legs. If it doesn't hold then, then I'm with Dan.
1: I have a question to ask here about today's rally, because we saw everything across the board rally, right? Broad-based rally, every single sector on the S&P 500 up 3% and more. Um, Commodities also rallied across the board. Mm -hmm. If you believe the Fed and if you believe that the Fed can engineer some sort of soft landing and tame inflation, should commodities also rally, BK?
6: Should commodities? Ra- yeah, yeah. They, yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, you had two things going on today. You had a weaker dollar, right? But the commodity story isn't necessarily a demand story. It's the supply story. So we, right, you know,
1: so on the, the Fed can't control. The Fed
6: can't that. control it. Uh, and uh, also okay. remember, China's closed right now. So all that commodity demand is not even out there, and commodity prices are at this level. So I think we've got an issue coming into the spring, uh, coming into the summer.
1: All right, coming up, we've got some earnings coming your way. Shares of Booking Holdings, Tripadvisor, and Etsy on the move after reporting. We'll bring you all the numbers next. Plus, we've got more on today's rally on the back of the Fed's rate hike. What is next for the markets as the central bank battles inflation? The details ahead. Do not go anywhere. Fast Money's back into. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Etsy, the online retailer meeting earnings estimates, but the stock's sinking on disappointing guidance. The conference call got underway at 5 p.m. Christina Parts is here with the very latest. Christina.
7: Melissa, with consumer spending pinched by inflation, retailers like Etsy are starting to take note. Etsy CFO, I should say, warning, quote, consumers have less disposable income and many more places to spend it. But did reassure investors these are short-term headwinds. The market is reacting, like you said, to the weak guidance for Q2 despite higher seller fees. And we also have disappointing uh, levels of active sellers and buyers. Both metrics came in lower than estimated. And keep in mind, about half of Etsy's active buyers still only make one purchase a year. And Etsy also said, quote, nowhere near, they are nowhere near saturation as the majority of their active buyers are still in the United States. There was an interesting tidbit on this conference call that's going on right now. Etsy claims, Ten percent of adult men in the United States and U.K. shopped on Etsy at least once in the past 12 months. Not sure about our panel, though. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll ask Christina, thank you. Christina Parts Nevelis. Now, BK, I know you've gone on there to buy a crocheted apron a couple times. That's right. Past, absolutely. But it's yep. very interesting to hear with this guidance and how it's framed. You know, they said in a world in which there are many more choices. Christina mentioned consumer having less disposable income which is a little bit surprising because you think the consumer is in such good shape can spend 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 and we're hearing from them but there's less disposable
6: income. Yeah, and, and so we've heard it from a couple other companies as well. So I, I, this is not necessarily that shocking. I mean, when you think about the product that Etsy sells, it is purely discretionary. I mean, nobody needs a macrame shirt or a macrame uh, apron or some even. People some people might. Some people, I did. Well, Dan got me a really nice um, macrame potholder. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it was very nice. Thank you. <laughs> But you don't need it. So that's the point. So with Etsy, though, I think this tells you that the edge state of the consumer is is weak and it's not as strong as maybe the market priced in today.
4: So a couple of things I think were the, the consumer that's clearly one although I don't know if that's uh, if that's Etsy pointing to it when maybe it was a little more Etsy. Remember what a beneficiary Etsy was of From the masks. pandemic. Mm-hmm. Homemade masks, oh, masks that you were can huge sell. but oh, people wanted things for their homes. I need mean, yeah. holders. Oh, macrame you know, ones. Exactly. Yes. So there's that. And now the stocks come in a lot the PE is a lot a lot lot lower for sure but still if you think of this as a you know a pandemic winner that and, we're, and we're coming out of it, as they're saying, you know, we have a lot more choices. You can go into a store, for example. <laughs> so that's sort of a confluence of some, some bad events for Etsy. I, I mean, they did a
1: great job during the pandemic, but I get why it's down. It should be down. I mean, buyers are only yep. making one purchase a year. Doesn't sound it's like a And the year was 2021. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Not a very robust mm-hmm. kind of business here. Um, let's mm-hmm. move on to booking holdings here, TripAdvisor earnings. Also out after the bell, booking reporting adjusted earnings of $3.90 a share, despite a slight earnings miss for TripAdvisor. Both stocks are moving higher ahead of what is expected to be a busy summer travel season. Let's get to Seema Modi with more from the report. Seema. <laughs>
8: Hey, Melissa, a record $27 billion in first quarter gross bookings. That is a jump of 129% compared to the prior year. Booking CEO Glenn Fogel says it's the highest quarterly amount in the company's history Citing an uptick in international flight searches on kayak and the largest sequential increase in alternative accommodations in the first quarter. That's a business that competes with Airbnb and Expedia's Verbo. Now, despite the threat of inflation, executives say summer gross bookings are tracking 50% higher than 2019. Those comments from executives sending shares higher by as much as 12% here in after hours. But let's turn to TripAdvisor. The company's seeing a 229% increase in experiences. And dining in the first quarter year-over-year. Year. Longtime CEO Steve Koffer, he's stepping down the board, appointing out former Trade Desk executive Matt Goldberg as a new CEO. Stock is up 6% here in After Hours. Melissa.
1: Seema, thank you. Seema Modi. So no macrame pot holders or shirts, Bonowen, but they are going on trips. The consumer, uh,
5: yeah, I'm surprised BK has, doesn't have any more for his uh, Dutch ovens. But um, you know, I know that these are the, the perceived areas of strength. We've got the travel sector, or these pockets within the travel sector. We've got healthcare, and we've got energy. Those, those are your areas of perceived strength. But I begin to wonder: Are we? reiterating the playbook of demand pull forward that we saw in a lot of the other stay at home names, right? You've seen this across the board. Uh, You take a look at Uber and Lyft and definitely there's bifurcation there in terms of like the dynamics of their customers. But I begin to wonder, is this getting a little long in the tooth?
3: Yeah, you know, Monday on the on the desk we were talking about Expedia's earnings, and we we're like, ah, yeah. eh, it's trading up a few percent, it's pretty decent results, pretty decent guidance, really good commentary. It kind of meshed pretty well with what we heard of United a couple weeks earlier, whatever. And then I look Tuesday morning, the stock was down 15 percent in a straight line, and so it really goes to show you just as far as sentiment right now. Look at how the the glass has turned from you know half empty to half full in uh, you know 48 hours. I'll just say this: I mean, this is a company again. I said the same thing about Expedia, pretty defensible, uh, you know, as far as uh, business model, uh, 72% gross margins, growing sales uh, 20% a year for the next few years. And again, I I just think that these are the sorts of companies you want to be in for reopening. Who knows when that happens? And here's just the last point. You got to look at people like Etsy and and kind of think about why they're saying what they're saying about the consumer. The consumer is not as strong. We know what happened over the last two years, why consumers' balance sheets were in great spots now. And the inflation picture is really going to kind of play, I think, a big role in what we think of the consumer over the next three to six months or so. So to me, I suspect that we see consumer drop off in the next few months or so. But if you're buying a ticket, you're buying it ahead of time. booking a VRBO or an alternative, thing you're buying ahead of time. And I don't think that's a great indicator for that. Mm.
6: Yeah. And I think, you know, he said, talk buying a ticket. Look at the airlines. Right. So we all know that they have actually been doing quite well. But some of them are now starting to say we're going to reduce capacity, number one, because there's a pilot shortage. But then it goes back to the energy play. Right. What's it going to cost to run these planes again? And as prices creep up and people say, well, I did my blowout trip to Hawaii. I don't know if I want to do another one to Peoria. Then I think things start to die down. All right.
1: Coming up, we're charting some cheddar. Could a strong dollar hit a key area of the market fighting inflation? The chart master will join us to lay it out. Plus, more on the big Fed move from today, a stock shrugging off a half point hike as a central bank tries to fight inflation. More on that next. You're watching Fast Money live from the Nasdaq market side in Times Square. Back right after this. Recapping our top story, the Fed says so long, 75, and Wall Street says hello rally. The S&P jumped 3 percent, its best one-day gain since May of 2020. The Dow surged more than 900 points, its best day since November 2020. And the Nasdaq roared higher by 3.2 percent. But our next guest isn't cheering the Fed's moves today. He says the chair is too optimistic and thinks Powell is just winging it. Peter Bookfar is the chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group and a CNBC contributor. Peter, great to have you with us. I'm getting a lot of tweets, not that I care what Twitter says necessarily, um, but that we're so negative. So I guess, you know, welcome to the party here. (laughs) Why do you think Powell is just winging? I mean, in reality, isn't that what he should do? Because we don't really know what will unfold. So there is going to be a certain degree of, quote, unquote, winging it.
9: Oh, I agree. I mean, they're going to raise rates. They're going to shrink the balance sheet and see what happens. Uh, You know, part of the winging it was, He was asked the question, why aren't you starting QT now instead of waiting until June 1st? And he said, well, ah, we just decided to pick that day. Like it was there was no science behind that. Uh, Then he was asked, well, what's going to be the impact of QT? Well, we just really don't know. Well, if you don't know the impact of QT, then why did we have QE? How would you know the impact of that? So there's a lot of just, you know, throw stuff against the wall and see what happens. And I think they did that. On the easing side and they're going to do that on the tightening side.
6: Hey, Peter, it's BK. So, you know, he talked a little bit about the path to a softer, soft-ish landing. Where do you stand on that? Because it seems to me that that's a, a pretty narrow needle that he needs to thread.
9: Well, this is going to be the most aggressive tightening cycle in 40-plus years between the rate hikes and the shrinking of the balance sheet. And considering how dependent economic activity is to cheap money, how dependent markets have been to cheap money, I don't see how it's possible to achieve a soft landing.
4: Peter, it's Karen. I think this is a question I asked you maybe last time you were on. If you were magically the Fed chair today, what would your
9: policy be? Well, I would do what he's doing now. Uh, The difference between myself and Jay Powell is prior to this in terms of the amount of easing and for how long they did it. But I think he's on the path that he should be and then we just get to see what happens and we all debate about what's priced into the markets what's not what's not priced in I believe yet in full is the economic impact of all this the bond markets priced in pretty much all the rate hikes we're going to get and then some but I haven't seen earnings estimates for this year change at all and if, if in fact they've gone up so if there are low odds of a soft landing which means that we're gonna have a recession. Well, that means that earnings numbers are gonna have to come down. And the economic impact of not just what the Fed does, but what the ECB is gonna do, the BOE, the Bank of Canada, a global synchronized monetary tightening, I don't think the economic impact of all this has been fully priced into markets.
1: You know, Peter, we were just talking about, um, you know, the notion that Powell has control over the demand side and not the supply side. And we're seeing commodities go to these levels, even with China's most populous cities effectively locked down in some way, shape or form. Um, How do you see this playing out? I mean, let's say by, you know, fall or the end of the year. Where do you think we are in terms of the impact on the consumer here in the U.S. and what we're seeing in terms of inflationary pressures? Do you think he gets at least some of the inflation out of the system?
9: Well, I I do believe that the rate of change in inflation has peaked out here, and it's just a question of how much do we fall. But there's a lot of price increases in the pipeline. I'll listen to a lot of conference calls, and companies are still going to take this year and into next year to recapture lost profit margin. And then it gets to the question is, at what point does the consumer blink in the face of these rising prices? And on the low-end consumer, they're already beginning to blink, and whether Etsy's a tip-off, I've seen some others. The question is is when do we get to see that breakage in other parts of the, of the income strata call it? And I think we're getting close to that point. And that's when the consumer starts to say, you know what, I'm just gonna wait. I don't need to do this right now. I'm just gonna wait to see if, if things cool down in terms of pricing. And I think we're now running up to that, that line that we're about to cross over, which then has obvious economic implications. and then you start to see an eventual decline in inflation. But it's the inflation that eventually breaks the inflation.
1: Right. Peter, always great to get your take. Thank you. Peter Bakhvar, you know, in Peter's note earlier today, before the Fed decision came out, he made the point of, you know, the U.S. consumer being so used to discounts. Remember, once upon a time, everybody waited till like November, even past Black Friday, till like a week before Christmas to do all their shopping because prices would come down. And here we are in the situation where it's assumed that the consumer is going to pay up price increases after price increase on toilet paper on dog food, on pampers, on gas,
3: on food. I mean, this yeah. goes on and on. And I, I, listen, I think one of the most important things Peter said, and he does really thoughtful work, and he does listen to dozens and dozens mm-hmm. of earnings call. And I think that's where you get a lot of the good stuff. Um, earnings estimates have not come down for the S&P 500. We had GDP in Q1 that contracted, okay? We have all of these inflationary pressures. Even if they come out, even if it peaked in March, they're still staying high. So you're telling me that S&P earnings are going to be up 8 nine, ten 9%, 10% possibly? No way. I mean, I suspect they come in mid single digits, maybe low single digits. And that's why the S&P 500 has not bottomed out the high valuation stuff. We're seeing that compression right now and stuff that's down 50, 60, 70 percent. We have not seen it in the mega cap tech names. And I think that's the next shoe to drop this summer. So one of the
5: things that we've we've debated on the show is the Fed's willingness for there to be price destruction or income destruction, wealth destruction within public markets and private markets. One thing that I think is flying under the radar is destruction within the housing sector and how that ties to to the consumer. I don't think you really are able to tighten down spinning in a way when when people are still able to access additional credit in their homes. Now, those rates have continued to rise, but I think that's another shooter drop that I'd be very interested to see how the how the Fed is gonna handle that.
1: Yeah. Um, the desk is decidedly negative tonight. I mentioned that uh, before. You know, well, I, you know, I wouldn't yeah, okay.
6: say I'm all that negative. Yeah. I just okay. I'm skeptical <laughs> of this 900 point rally <laughs> that Powell took 75 basis points off the table. This market can rally, if you, the equity investors wanna decide that he was dovish, this thing can rally. Earnings haven't earnings estimates haven't come down. He can go for it.
1: I'm just you going not believe it.
6: Well, I might not believe it, but I'll trade it. <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, thanks little Miss Sunshine. I had a couple <laughs> things actually that I thought were positive actually in the housing front. There were two companies that reported today, Residio, which is a spin-off from Honeywell, hmm. and another one BXC, which is I think Blue Links, it's also in the housing related business. Both giant earnings and big forecasts. And why do you? Why would you need to put out a big forecast right. in this market? They must feel very confident. The other thing is the S and P. We always talk about this all the time. It's not a monolithic one stock thing. You've had the the IGV kind of names. The you know super high tech software ones get crushed and probably have more room down. And then you have some things like a CVS today at 11 times earnings. You know, there's a lot of value. But it is kind
3: of monolithic because there's like five names that make up 25 percent of the weight of an index of 500 stocks. And the Nasdaq 100, those five names make up about 45 percent. So it is monolithic. And I actually think I've said this before. I think the Fed buys Apple all the time. Apple was trading up 1 (laughs) percent today. It really was keeping the S&P and the Nasdaq not looking nasty when I looked at dozens of stocks that were down 5, 7, 10 percent or so. So I think there's some funny business going on there. It is a monolithic. You
1: think there's a plunge protection team? I I do. I think that's the easiest trade
3: Berkshire Hathaway is all Apple. Why couldn't the Fed's balance sheet be Apple?
1: (laughs) Right. Coming up, dollar detriment. Could the strength of the U.S. dollar spell trouble for one key area of the market? Carter Worth is hitting the charts to lay it out. Plus, ride-sharing stocks slamming the brakes after some rough results. Is it time to completely drive away from this trade? The details ahead. Fast money's back in two.
3: Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this.
1: Welcome back to Fast Money. The dollar falling today after the Fed's big rate hike, but the chartmaster says its overall continued strength could be a headwind still for stocks. He's sounding the alarm on one sector in particular. Let's go to the chartmaster, Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Carter, what do you see?
10: Sure, all sorts of things. But first, uh, something for everybody today, right? I mean, think about it. Friday, the Dow was down 939 points, and today it's up 932. Here we are basically unch from last Thursday. Bears, bulls, but um, still the fight goes on. Staples, consumer staples, uh, let's examine the circumstance in relation to the dollar. First slide, we know that certain companies do a great percentage of their business overseas. So you can see the names here, but these are big names and all of them have 50% plus of their sales outside the US. And so a strong dollar hurts those type of companies versus UnitedHealth, a top 15 company, has 0% of its sales outside the US for reasons that are obvious. The next slide, just as a summary, basically we know the dollar's at a 20-year high and we know in principle a strong dollar is a headwind for US companies, US stocks, and basically 30% of the S&P 500 sales come from overseas. But then it gets down to which sector maybe is the most sort of impaired by that. or And it, and it's consumer staples. And so let's look at a few uh, charts, a few tables. First, what you see here is the EPS growth correlation year-over-year year, sector versus the dollar. And you see it right there on the bottom, staples have the biggest problem, if you will, when the dollar is strong. And so what I would say is there's a conundrum and you can see it just as uh, written in this slide. Staples are the single most defensive sector and yet staples are the single most exposed to a strong dollar. And so if one wants to be defensive, this is an area and yet the strong dollar is a problem. So look at the, this ratio chart. This is very telling. This is simply taking staples Divided by the S&P, or in this case the Spiders XLP, relative to the SPY, and I've used the 150-day moving average, and this is since 09. There have been three other instances when we when staples were this extended, uh, over trend, and each and every time they've started to underperform, and I think that's the risk here. And staples it would be a favorite underweight for us. And then finally, a chart of the U.S. dollar. We know that when you quickly approach a former high. While it looks like it's going to be a breakout, that's not the sequence. More often than not, before exceeding the high, you have to contend with it. And so we got literally to the penny, to the January 2017 high, and we started backing away. And there was an accelerant today, right, two-year yields dropping, dollar dropping post-Fed. And so the strong dollar is a problem for Staples. We don't like them. We want to be underweight. And we do think that the dollar should pull back here because it's way overdone.
1: All right. Uh, Carter, thank you. Carter Braxton worth of worth charting. Uh, Carter was highlighting the relative under, outperformance, excuse me, um, to the S&P 500 for the valuations, too, relatively high compared to the S&P. When you take a look at a Procter, Kimberly Clark, mm-hmm. Coca-Cola, they're all at, in the 20s, 26 or so, 28. Procter & Gamble is in the 30s. Because it's been the place to hide,
6: right? Yeah. You get you get decently high dividends. You, you look at it as a defensive type of sector. So if you are going to have a soft landing or a recession or something like that. You probably want to be in these names. If you still want to play that game, though, you can stick with the domestic one. So, you know, one that I am long that that I've mentioned before is Altria, MO, all U.S.-based. They don't necessarily have to worry about the stronger dollar. So that's one way to play it. The other thing I would say is, you know, another part of the rally today weaker dollar, people say, well, maybe I don't have to worry about the dollar anymore. And so that boosts the rally. So that could go on if we get a weaker dollar in the short to medium term.
1: I misspoke, by the way. Clorox is 36. All the rest are in the 20s.
3: You know, it's one of Part of the argument that people, guy makes it all the time, that you know now that Apple is a value stock, it trades at a growth stock multiple, and it really does look like a consumer staple. A lot of people, you know, kind of put it in that category. Um, I just it is not immune to kind of technology, you know, kind of secular shifts, that sort of thing. But you know, again, I mean, if staples are going to have all of that overseas exposure, you got to think about all right, what's going on in Europe? Are they going to be in a recession soon enough? Because we know that some of the issues there are just worse than they are here, and we don't have a lot of great um, visibility on when that war in Ukraine. Ukraine And so to me, I think some of those staples that do get a lot of um, you know, exposure from Europe, I think that's probably a tough trade at this valuation right now.
4: So I think about sort of a derivative of that, a Walmart or a Target that sell that that Walmart has some overseas exposure, but the majority is in the U.S. where they have costs that are in those foreign currencies. So so that, that's a benefit to them. So I mean, I kind of like Walmart here. I like Target here as well for the same reason.
1: Target is entirely U.S. Coming up, the crypto climb. Bitcoin jumping today after a rough year for the space. So what is next for the trade? Our Bitcoin baller here is here to break it down. Plus, zero stars for the ride-sharing trade. Uber and Lyft hitting the skids as earnings disappoint. So are the stocks worth hailing, or is it time to drive away? Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money Check out Lyft and Uber both getting hammered today on the back of two very disappointing sets of results. Uber dropping 4% more than after reporting a loss of 5.9 billion before the bell, while Lyft had its worst day ever, falling nearly 30%. But the options traders now betting things can't get any worse. Mike co joins us now to break down a wild day of action in these names. Mike.
2: Typically, when you see these kinds of huge moves, you get huge options volumes. That was definitely the case today. Lyft traded 12 times the average daily call volume. Uber traded well over four times the average daily call volume. In Lyft, the activity we're seeing was mostly short-dated, a lot of stuff expiring at the end of this week. One of the trades that caught my eye was a purchase of the May 13th Weekly 23 strike calls, those were extremely active, and that included some institutional purchases, including one of just under 5,200 contracts for about 70 cents, $0.77 cents a contract. Uh, buyer, obviously, betting that Lyft could rebound by the end of next week. Uh, and that's modestly out of the money, considering where the stock is now. In Uber, uh, the situation was a little bit different. So here, the trade that caught my eye was a purchase of 2,500 of the June 40, 50 call spreads. Those traded for $1.23. Ultimately, 10,000 of those traded by the end of the day. That is well out of the money. In fact, Uber would need to rise at least 50% for that trader just to break even. And the higher strike call that they sold is 80% out of the money. It is possible that a trade like that could be used as a partial hedge against a short position. But either way, it indicates some assessment that there's a possibility that the stock somehow rebounds. That would be quite a move.
1: All right, Mike. Thanks, Mike Co. And speaking of Uber, do not miss the CEO who will be on Squawk Box tomorrow, eight thirty a.m. Eastern Time, right here on CNBC. Um, Bonoan, higher or lower on Uber and or Lyft?
5: Oof, oh, that's tough. Um, lower. Um,
1: I'm, they go lower.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that option trade is purely them saying things are so bad that they've got to be
3: good in the interim. But I. No, don't fight. All right, so here's the lift. It's down 30%. It's down 80%. The Who lift. cares yeah. how much here's it's an down? Here's well, Here's the thing. <laughs> I like these guys, and I like their business model. I prefer them to Uber, and we like the domestic focus and all the other things. Here's the thing. It's got a $6.3 billion enterprise value right now, and a multiple of sales It's below two. It's probably almost there. They have a lot of cash. Karen was just saying, 2.3 and a $7 billion market cap. So probably goes a little lower um, in the near term. But this is a name, I think, when we get back to We're going to see some strategic M&A when this whole thing meshes out maybe this is the sort of name that gets uh, kind of wrapped up in that.
1: Lyft gets bought?
3: Yeah. A lot of data there, man.
1: Mm. Just a lot for of the data, data? A
3: lot of data there. But who would buy that? Because them? aren't they all going to autonomy? Isn't that going to be a thing?
1: of mm-hmm. robo-taxis. I don't
3: right? know. Any Any meat 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 I mean, they can just well, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, but the they've also been doing go. this for 10 years now, and they have yeah. a lot of data about this stuff. So, I mean, to me, it just seems like a very cheap asset, a cheap brand that would be hard to replicate from here.
1: All right. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That'll be Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, Bitcoin bounce, a cryptocurrency nearing the $40,000 mark once again. Brian Kelly is here to break down the crypto trade next. Fast Money is back in two. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Clorox. You can catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. And do not forget, you can have Kramer delivered right to your inbox at the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up now at CNBC.com join the club or by using the QR code on your screen. All right, check out Bitcoin bouncing back today. The crypto climbing nearly 6% as it tries to shake off its losses this year. So far in 2022, Bitcoin is down 13%. The move bringing other coins along for the ride. Ether, Solana, even Dogecoin is in the green today. Um, so barometer of risk, everything rallied. So did Bitcoin.
6: Any yeah, you, and so what's interesting is the correlation between Bitcoin and the NASDAQ 100 has been almost 70 percent, at least the 30-day rolling correlation. So it's basically the Nasdaq. But what we saw today was something slightly different. When the Nasdaq was tanking earlier in the morning and it was down one and a half percent or so, Bitcoin was up. And that is the first time maybe the last couple of days we started to see some divergence. You're seeing a slight, slight divergence there. But remember, I think Bitcoin has been and will continue to be this hedge against money printing. And so everybody out there is saying, OK, the Fed's going to raise rates at some point in time. They're going to have to turn that printer back on. And I think today people are trying to gauge when that is going to come.
1: Mm-hmm. What's your outlook on Ethereum? I mean, you read almost every day about an NFT going back on the market for much less than it was bought for. Right. And so you got to wonder what how about the coins you know, yeah. backing it?
6: Well, I mean, so the thing, the thing about Ethereum, the big Thing there is gonna be the merge, which is supposedly later this year. It might have been this summer, but it got pushed back. Anytime something comes with Ethereum, you you want to say it's gonna take a little bit longer. That is the big deal with with Ethereum. Everything is being built on it. Yeah, the NFTs are coming down. I've been skeptical of the NFTs for exactly what Elon Musk said today. They don't seem that. They seem awful fungible. You can copy and paste them and make them your avatar, and you didn't pay for them.
1: They're like JPEGs. Yes. Right? I mean, we just, I, just I, a I, lot of skeptics have said. To the be beginning.
3: clear, I think they're going to be huge, but uh, not in
6: the form they are yeah, today. Yeah,
3: Mel, you're missing it. It's about community.
4: <laughs> we did that big that land grab <laughs> yeah. sale that went up the other day. But I got a question for BK, though. So part of the Bitcoin story was the adoption of institutional investors needing to have exposure there. What is that still the case? Is that played out? Where, no, where no. I goes?
6: mean, it's, it's it's absolutely still the case, because if you look at the uh, institutions have barely come in. Right. You have barely any pension funds, barely any major um, institution. It's mostly family offices, small institutions. However, you also are getting these macro funds in there, which are trading it as a proxy for Fed liquidity. And so that is what's that's the dynamic you have right now. But the long term trajectory for Bitcoin to me is still wildly bullish.
1: All right. Up next, we have your final trade. Let's take a check on shares of AMD. This is one that we addressed in the after hours yesterday when they posted earnings better than expected. Um, It was an interesting intraday trade, and I guess it really reflected exactly what happened with the broader markets when Fed Powell uttered those words that 75 basis points is not being considered at this time, Dan.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is a group that I, I heard you guys last night. I watched the show when I'm not on. You guys are really good. You surrounded the trade here. I, I mean, listen, you know, we saw a bad report out of Intel. We saw um, good results out of Qualcomm, out of AMD, out of NXP. There's been some good results here. And we like to track this sector because we think it's fairly cyclical. We know there's some weird supply-demand dynamics here. But this is a cheap stock. Lisa Su, CEO, had a great interview on the on the air this morning. So, yeah, it got on its horse. It probably has uh, some more room to run here.
1: All right, final trade time. Bonowin. what do you say?
5: Berkshire, listen. Despite their Apple holdings, I think this company has shown enough adeptness to be able to pounce and make acquisitions in turbulent markets. I'm sticking with them.
1: You got the plunge protection put yeah. right, <laughs> Karen. <laughs> I'm intrigued by Dan's Lyft idea.
4: So this is a three-day rule one for sure, but I think it's worth looking at its six, seven billion enterprise value. Very interesting. BK.
6: You know, if you want to play the rise in energy, ExxonMobil, good dividend, and they get good spreads.
1: Dan.
3: Yeah, I like Carter's charting of the XLP. That's the Consumer Staples ETF. I'd be a seller of that, too.
1: All right. Thanks for watching Fast. Stay back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
7: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx
1: offers you picture-proof-of-delivery,